Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change, and we'll have some fun along the way. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward-thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and contributing to the discussion. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side. From Atlanta, Georgia, I am Kurt Dupuy. I forgot to tell you, I just had lunch with uh, a guy here in Atlanta who just found the podcast through recommendations. I guess the Apple algo, the AI working in our favor. He's like, yeah, I love podcasts. I came across yours and ended up meeting a new guy, very like-minded, loves practice management. Is like, well, well we're going to be people then. So someone somewhere recommended us. Is that what you're saying? This is this is happening. We it's are all coming a, together. Appeasing the AI robot gods. Well, so we had one of our favorite people. We caught up with Penny Phillips, who owns Thrivos Consulting. So it's a consulting company for practice management for financial professionals. But she's also started as a co-founder of an RIA that's been really successful, fulfilling a niche for them that obviously it's working because they're recruiting like crazy and, and growing and building. So we sort of intertwined the business happenings of the RIA, but also what she's talking about in practice management related things. And since she's so close to it, great conversation with her. She won episode of the year, that first year that Kurt and I were doing right. this. So go back and listen to that other episode after this, uh, if you haven't already. Um, but we just love her. She's she's fantastic. And I kind of wrote down a couple of notes. The first one is, it's been kind of interesting. And I don't know, Kurt, that we set out to actually do this, but we've had a bunch of what you would call, quote unquote, aggregators on mm-hmm. the show so far, which is that... You know, if you're if you're not in, in the ind, I guess it's good to call it in the independent world, but I don't even want to say that because they're happening everywhere. But let's just say in the independent world, you can go fully independent and run everything for yourself and have uh, you know the full payout, etc. But a lot of people don't want to do that. It's kind of you know to run all the compliance and the operations and the rent and the whatever, so that these organizations pop up to be able to to help. With that, uh, another good example was Dax uh, was on our show. Dax Staduar right. from the network Mariner Wealth Advisors does it in the LPL system. We had the Golden State folks, and and Penny has done it in the RIA space. And I thought it was interesting what their group focuses on, which is essentially get financial professionals to the point where they're really spending the bulk of their time on growth. I mean, the numbers she threw out there was eighty percent of their time uh, on business development and growth. She used the term relentless prospecting. And so, you know, you get 50% payout, but they handle everything else, the practice management, the operations, the compliance. I mean, I hadn't heard really anybody talk about like fully owning the processes, the practice management, all of that, which I think was kind of interesting. She was one of the first people that talked about this idea because, you know, I I think part of our our practice management efforts were pushing financial professionals to think more like CEOs, to be more business minded. And she was the first to be like, have you actually talked to these people? A lot of them do not want to be CEO. They want to be financial professionals and not do all this other stuff. And so she's, I mean, doubling down on that idea is like there, there is a market for for outsourcing a lot of the other stuff. And people just want to spend time with their clients and prospects and outsource as much of everything else as they can. Yeah, it's a good point. Like some people are predisposed or could handle the things like CEOs pretty well, and some can't. And it's kind of interesting to to know where you are and how you approach the business and what you're capable of and where you want to spend your time. And, you know, then you've got all these different options to kind of figure out what's the right structure with you for you, which is why all these structures exist. That's a really, really great point. She she also got into, okay, if we're going to spend all this time on seeing clients and business development, she talked about growth and she talked about you know the paralysis that people often get in marketing. Okay, I've carved this time. I know what I want to do. And then I end up answering a bunch of emails all day and feel like I'm busy. No. It's like, how do you get beyond that paralysis? And she has some very specifics around that, which I thought was interesting. And one other thing, and There'll be more than than these takeaways, but I just kind of wrote a top three for me, was her comments about sales assistants and their career tracks. Human capital. Like she's also like the human capital practice management person. 
you figure, okay, I got a, a sales assistant. They may do it for this long. Where do they go from here? Whatever. You think that would be logical, but I haven't really seen as much of that um, in the marketplace. What I've seen is kind of a sales assistants all get put in one bucket from the people that don't want to get registered at all to people that are full-fledged CFP in front of clients, right. even business development. And they're kind of all in that same bucket. And it frustrates me like, there should be different roles and tracks, et cetera. So I thought all of that was really, really interesting. And uh, as as with the first time, loved having her on. Absolutely. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Penny Phillips. But before we get to that, make sure you smash that subscribe button, tell a friend, and leave us a five-star review on Apple. It helps other people find the show. And any questions or comments or criticism, email them directly to Steve at the whole truth at touchstonefunds.com. And here's our conversation with Penny Phillips. And welcome back to the show. One of our favorite guests, and I say that not just to butter you up, you know that you won episode of the year, our first year. We told you that, right? Did you know that? I don't think I knew that. That's amazing. You didn't get the six foot trophy? I didn't get a gift. I didn't get anything. No, maybe I didn't. You know what it is, guys? I feel like I just spoke to you, but it's been a minute. It's been like a year and a half, right? Yeah, almost two. Yeah, it's it's been a couple of years since that episode. So I should say her name since we're already into the conversation. Welcome back, Penny Phillips. We are delighted to have you back. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. There's a whole lot going on in your world. When we first connected with you, you had uh, the consulting business, which is Thrivos Consulting, which you still do. But you had just point at that point started with Journey, which was an RIA that you started up with a couple of partners. So maybe as a kickoff to this conversation, remind us uh, what who Journey is um, and how things have been going since you launched. Absolutely. It's wild that I spoke to you folks right at the beginning of that. So, you know, I was doing the consulting thing, still still own that business, consulting advisors on how to build and monetize businesses. And what I noticed about the consulting, and this will lead into the journey story, by the way, is that the advisors started to think differently about what they were building, right? They were building within a broker dealer or a captive system. And at some point they started to realize that the the businesses they were building had real value, like significant value, more than they could ever get if they stayed internally and sold back to the home office. The pandemic hits and the whole world sort of changes. And so not only do advisors realize, gosh, I can leave the institution where I'm at and and recognize what I've built in a real way, but I'm sort of rethinking my whole career and life and I'm not even sure what I want to build. And so I noticed that advisors were hitting this I don't want to say a a wall, but this fork in the road. And so I decided to leave the consulting thing and launch an RIA for advisors and fill a very specific gap in the marketplace. And that gap was advisors were leaving broker dealers, institutions, wirehouses, going RIA. And one of two things were happening. Either the advisor was going out to launch their own RIA because the industry is telling them they need to do that. And they would do that and then recognize it's not that fun to build and run your own RIA. It takes a tremendous amount of work, more so than it does to build in a broker dealer where you already have baked in resources. So advisors were building RAs and then hitting the capacity wall and recognizing like, hey, I don't really love this. The valuations on these businesses aren't as great as the bigger ones, the whole story. It was either that or they join an RIA platform They'd give up basis points or a percentage of their P&L to access resources, right? We can think of any number of RIA platforms out there right now offering this. An advisor would say, great, I can access resources and then run my own business only to realize, well, so many of the real challenges I'm having actually have nothing to do with technology and resources and everything to do with actually running the business. Right. So... What I was finding was advisors in that scenario were coming back to the same challenge they were having at the broker dealer or wirehouse. I'm giving up money for an expected value and I can't explain what that value is I'm getting in return. Oh, and by the way, I still have to run my business. So what we wanted to build was an offering that sat really in the middle of those things. 
allowed advisors to own their entity and their equity, own their clients, unless, of course, they want to sell, allow advisors to have access to all of the resources necessary to build a business, actually help them operate and run the business, but allow them to spend the majority of their time doing what they actually want to do, which is rainmaking and working with clients. So that's the offering. And so it's been incredible to have this idea come to life. And um, we're 24 people now, nine advisors, just under $3 billion in assets, three offices. So it's been a wild two years. Yeah, that's great. Kurt and I have had the opportunity to talk to a few different, I would say, not exactly the same as what you guys are doing, but something a little bit like that, which is just say, I want to go independent, but if I don't have anybody that helps me to any degree, it's like, what do I even do? You know? And so you see, you know, the LPLs, you have these super OSJs that are people are, are rolling under. And even in in the wires now, you're seeing the ones that are creating semi-independent channels. You're seeing some of those sub-organizations pop up. So what, what do you guys like, if you had to succinctly say what you guys do that's maybe different? So I'll take this super OSJ model or you're in a broker dealer, right? Big broker dealer. And then you're in an OSJ and then you have your own DBA or firm name within that OSJ, right? And from the OSJ, you're getting access to like the investment management piece and you're getting access to maybe it's a financial planner in-house who can help you, you know, uh, with complex planning scenarios, you get the compliance oversight, et cetera. The challenge with it, so by the way, that model is great for some advisors, right? That works really well. But oftentimes what happens is, the advisor will still hit the capacity wall at a certain point because they are responsible for hiring, managing, and retaining team members. So yes, they have access to all these resources. They're on a 70-something percent payout or an 80-something percent payout. The, the firm is telling the advisor, we're going to give you access to all this stuff and we're going to proactively help you when in reality, the pro, and this is the differentiator, the proactive help means if you're an advisor and you pick up and you call your you know, manager at the OSJ or your regional leader, they're going to pick up the phone. That's not proactive support. What we have done is said, we're not going to put you on a 70% payout. We're going to give you 50% of your revenue. We are going to do everything for you, including telling you when you need to hire the next team member, helping you craft compensation strategies for your associate advisor, help you develop a associate, a client service associate into a financial advisor. That's the most critical evolution of a role, by the way, on a team. We are actually going to help you strategically run the business while giving you access to all of the resources. For me, you're either giving advisors lowest cost or highest value. We are highest value. If you go to a firm that's telling you, we're going to do everything for you, usually you're either giving up 100% of your equity and you become an employee of the firm, or you're signing a, you, you have a forgivable note of some kind, you have a contract that, ha, that has clawback provisions and all, all the like. We don't have any of that. All of the risk of retaining advisors is on us. And so what I love about the wirehouses is like, they really create this network and community around advisors to help them be advisors. The problem is, the way they think about the business is so outdated. Advisors, I saw one of the big wires just had some social media thing about how they're letting advisors record videos. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like that's <laughs> that's your like the, who the year put 2000 call. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's ridiculous. So we've looked at both of those models and said like, what do we like and not like from each of those, and how can we sort of bake that into the contracts? What are those pain points that that you're talking about from a practice management perspective today? how to optimize their business and get the most out of the people who are working for them. Number one thing we work on, I would say, well, there's a couple things. The first is team development. And it's not just how do I hire somebody? It is how do I develop somebody into a role that is going to be either revenue generating or what I call revenue protecting. My When I think about the optimal advisory business structure in today's marketplace, obviously it's the journey structure, right? It has to be, but it's an advisor is spending the majority of their time rainmaking and business developing, and they have people on their team responsible for delivering advice and service to clients. So at some point, if we want advisors to continue to rainmake and generate new business, 
we need other people on the team, not just to take away the administrative and operational stuff. We also need people who can deliver advice to clients. Like every advisor and every consultant and coach out there talks about how you need to add rainmakers to your team. My perspective has always been, no, if you are the rainmaker, you need to add advisors who want to be in-house advisors and can deliver advice. And so a lot of the work we do is around how do we how do we shift people into roles or how do we hire people for roles where we're constantly scaling and optimizing? We talk a lot about growth, obviously, organic growth, inorganic growth. We help advisors understand, like, do you even want to buy a book of business? Every advisor says, I want to buy a book of business. Why do you want to buy a book of business? Do you know what that entails? Um, so a lot about just growth in today's marketplace. And then I'd say the third thing, succession planning. So many advisors have G2 on their teams and they always assume G2 would take over. A lot of the G2 advisors do not want to buy out G1 and they don't want to be rainmakers. So what do you do in that scenario? That's a lot of the stuff that we work on. So the first around like getting to a point where where the, the financial professional is spending 80% of their time on business development, a big problem in the industry right now is one, finding talent, hiring talent. I, I guess, one, what do you do about that problem? And the other part of my question is, are people rethinking roles? So you alluded to something there that was like, an in-house advisor being different than a rainmaker? Are people thinking about different roles for sales assistants? So I think I just threw 15 questions on you. The one thing that does not keep me up at night about this business is finding talent. And, and it is the opposite of what everybody says. I believe the firms that cannot find talent are the firms that have no differentiator value proposition vision and mission that especially the younger talent wants to coalesce around. And and listen, maybe that's harsh and maybe people will disagree. But when you have an industry where the leaders of these organizations all literally physically look the same, by the way, except for me, but like physically look the same, they have the same background and pedigree. I think when you have a different perspective on the marketplace, when you're trying to do something different, one of the things we talked about very early on was this idea of allowing people to define success for themselves. This idea that every advisor or every person who enters our business needs to become the billion dollar advisor who's a CEO of a business. To me, that is us dictating success for everybody else. What if somebody wants to come in and be an advisor and have work-life balance and pick up their kids from school at three o'clock, but work with the type of people they want to work with. That's an advisor that it's our responsibility to build a model around that advisor, not get them to change what they want. And so the way we were talking about what we were trying to build, I think just attracted a lot of talent. We're 50% women, 50% female advisor, which is very rare in our business. And I think it's because we've just taken a different perspective. The other thing is this, I am a relentless prospector. That's a concept I talk a lot about. I have been keeping a list of people I've wanted to hire in a fictitious business venture that I didn't even know about seven years ago. I've had a list of people for, you know, probably a decade. People that I've met through coaching, through consulting. Everybody at Journey is somebody that I knew from a past life. So when you're running a business, and I tell this to advisors all the time, you have to be that obsessed with the future of what you're building so much so that you meet somebody, you have a conversation with them. Guess what? They're going in an Excel spreadsheet. You're calling that person four times a year because when the role opens up and you want that person, it's guaranteed they're joining you because they're so excited about what you're building. So the other piece I'd say is in terms of advisors finding talent, look at what's happening in our industry with you know, firms like Fidelity that have these these in-house advisors, right? Like, and it's I'm not saying Fidelity is laying people off. I'm saying you want to hire an advisor on your team to deliver advice. Look at the insurance broker dealers. They bring on so many advisors that fail out within the first three years because they can't rain make or AKA sell whole life insurance to, to anyone, but are great advisors. You find people at Fidelity or any of the custodians who are in-house advisors and get sick of working in a corporate structure, like that's where you need to be looking for talent. And so that piece is like never one I'm worried about. Um, the piece about evolving roles, I have a different perspective on this idea that advisors are aging out of the industry. We keep saying advisors are retiring. It's not happening. It's not only is it not happening, 
the industry has consolidated. So this idea that advisor is going to retire and their book of business is going to be left in limbo, it, it's not true. What's theoretically what's happening is advisors are merging, firms are buying other firms, and it, eventually what will happen is books of business will go to salaried advisors at these mega ensemble RIAs. That's the truth. So I don't I don't think we have the, the problem that we've been telling advisors. I think we need to be more open to the idea that not every advisor wants to be an eat what you kill production oriented advisor. And we need to be more open to this sort of salary plus bonus structure and get get our service advisors, our relationship managers, our client associates into those roles. You mentioned the CEO, and I want to just say one more thing on that. Yeah. What I think, and in what I think is really important for advice, and even before they think about how do I want to grow, how fast do I want any of that, advisors need to pick a lane in terms of do I want to build a lifestyle practice or do I want to build an enterprise? And the truth is that many advisors say they want enterprise, they really want lifestyle practice because they don't want to leave the role of business developing. They enjoy, I mean, most of these folks that we grew up in the business with, I mean, they started as salespeople, right? I mean, their dopamine levels are so tied to getting more people to want to join their firm. And so they don't want to leave that. So my point in saying that is like making that decision fundamentally about like, am I going to stay in the business development role? Do I want to still advise is absolutely critical. I don't believe that the advisor of the future is an advisor that is a technician in investment management. That's just my opinion. I think it's an advisor who is planning oriented, perhaps grew up as an, an investment only professional at some, you know, in the past but has the ability to deliver the wealth management and planning capabilities to a client. So that's tax planning and cash flow planning and retirement planning and all the things, which means that they got to outsource the investment management piece to some extent. And that's also the investment operations piece. So trading, reporting, billing, like I don't necessarily believe an advisor should be doing that. Somebody on their team or their firm should be doing that for them. So now they've got all this time and capacity and one of the things I learned right away in, in with this business is you can give people all the time and capacity, but they will default to filling that time with sometimes busy work or things that make them feel like they're busy because they avoid the tough stuff sometimes, which is the prospecting and getting out there. And so a lot of what we help advisors do is number one, focus and simplify. You don't have to have a 50 page marketing plan on a fillable PDF template in order to have a marketing plan for the year. You need to be focused on a couple things. What are the objectives you wanna achieve? You wanna deepen brand awareness. You wanna develop and be recognized as a thought leader in your community. You want to bring on profitable new business, meaning you're cueing yourself to say like, I'm not bringing on the smaller client, like I'm bringing on the client that generates 10,000 or more in revenue to my firm a year. So getting clear on that, and then on a monthly basis, meeting with your team or yourself to say, what are the activities that are going to drive towards achieving those objectives? It's, am I speaking about what we're building or the value we are delivering in, to every single person I talk to in a day? And I'll, just think about that for a second, right? I have journey every single person I talk to, whether it's you guys I'm talking to today, I've had five other calls, some with prospects, some with just random people that I know and love in the industry. At some point during the conversation, I'm talking about journey. You shouldn't be embarrassed about it. If you have complete conviction in what you're doing for people, if you believe so deeply in the mission of what you're doing, it's your obligation to talk to people. It's your obligation to talk to people and say, so much is going on right now in the markets. I, I know you work with an advisor. What are they doing to manage risk for you right now? You are not trying to sell them. You are genuinely and curiously being a steward of your profession and asking somebody what their advisor is doing to help them manage risk. So helping advisors understand that every conversation and interaction is an opportunity to promote the business, like that's number one. The other thing is creating authentic content. Most advisors think that they need to become... TikTok and YouTube stars to, and they're like, I can never do that. Like, I hate talking on video. And first of all, I, I totally agree. Like, and some advisors who are doing the video thing, it's like, please don't do it. It's ruined. <laughs> like, it's actually it's worth worthy. Yeah. Um, 
But teaching advisors that anything you could possibly need to to know about how to market to people is provided to you by your clients. So at the end of every week, make a list of all of the questions or problems somebody came to you with that week. That is a post or a couple sentence blog for every day of the next week. And I tell advisors to think really simple. If you don't have a social media following, by the way, it's taken me literally five years to build any sort of social media following. You have a natural audience, your clients. Start writing a Wednesday wisdom. I used to do this, a Wednesday wisdom blog to your clients where you say, we're getting so many amazing questions. We're helping so many people solve problems. I wanna share a highlight of the week with you, a strategy that we've helped somebody implement. It could be made up, it doesn't matter and encourage people to share that. That's how you build a content following. It could be an email. And so teaching advisors how to do that and step into what I call the relentless prospector mindset. I've heard you talk on other shows, um, or maybe it was wealth management. What do you write? You write for wealthmanagement.com? Is that what you write for? Yeah, I do. Yes, yes. I do a monthly blog and vlog. Yeah, you're all over the place. I forget. It was like absolutely great to like go (laughs) <laughs> go into the Penny Phillips world before this. It was, oh God. it was, it, we, I was all over the place. I don't know where I was, but I'm I was sick of my face. I I'm was bouncing all over voice, this industry, <laughs> but you talked a little bit about paralysis in marketing. I want to have time, but then I find myself doing busy work. What causes that paralysis? And is it simply by going through the things that you just mentioned that gets you over that? Talk about that a little bit. It's, a, it's such a great, great question. And it's a couple things. So first of all, we are so overstimulated in general, and especially in our industry. Every day, it's someone, a vendor or a third party promoting a new way to do things. Like you need to be on Twitter, you need to be on YouTube, you need to hold a virtual webinar, you need to, and you know, at some point it becomes really difficult. I mean, it's really hard to sift through all of that and not get FOMO and figure out what's authentic. So that in and of itself is really difficult. By the way, the bigger institutions now, because the industry is consolidating, they are dominating the our industry media, right? So they're saying most advisors are growing because of SEO on search engines or whatever they're saying. Yeah, if you have millions of dollars of budget to put around SEO and ads, of course you're going to grow that way. The reality is, is if you talk to individual advisors and you ask them, how did you grow last year? How was last year for you? How are they going to answer that? Referrals. They're going to say, amazing. People keep introducing people to us. And actually, we don't even ask for referrals. They're just giving us referrals. Imagine if we ask. That's what advisors always tell 99% of the time. So my point in that is doubling down on creating experiences, tangible value in the individual meetings with clients, um, using things like like holistic plan, I'm speaking on a holistic plan webinar next week, introducing tax planning software where you're scanning their tax returns and providing insights. Like no one's doing that right now. So thinking of ways in which you can elevate experiences in and of itself as a marketing strategy. The other piece of this though is really important. We will naturally default to the things that 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 make us feel like we, we've had success. It's the, it's the dopamine sort of regulation, right? Or, or oxytocin or whatever it is that makes us feel good. We feel good when we, a client says to us like, um, I'm, I'm, I, I love working with you or a prospect, you know, wants to work with us. But realistically, we can have a week where we don't get any of that feedback, right? And so what starts to happen is we don't want to put ourselves out there as much because we're not getting that positive feedback. We're not getting the dopamine. So the idea of getting the rejection or going on posting something on social media and not getting any likes, it starts to psychologically and and subconsciously, we're not getting the feedback. We don't want to do the activity anymore. And so what do we default to? We default to doing things that are making us feel like we've completed something. So we're doing BS work. We're, you know, answering an email or we're, you know, stepping into something we shouldn't be stepping into because there is some finality to and we have control over it. Right. And so what I tell advisors is when you start to feel that, call your best clients. If you have a week where you're not getting that dopamine that's going to keep you excited about prospecting, create it for yourself. Call your best friend. Call your best client. 
Call it center of influence. Ask people what they love about working with you. Do something that's going to create that to get you motivated. So a lot of that paralysis actually has to do with literally what's going on in our brains. Um, the last thing I'll say is for people, uh, I hear from advisors a lot. I have an associate advisor, a junior advisor on my team, and they don't want to rainmake. And I want them to rainmake. Or I want them to be looking for opportunities. If it is not your natural inclination to be the influencer or the connector, it doesn't matter how much create capacity you create for these people, they're never going to default to that activity. So change your expectations. So staying with technology, so you mentioned holistic plan. Um, I've, I've had several folks talk about FP Alpha as also kind of like a yes. next-gen technology suite. Uh, and I know you have a whole presentation on technology. So what are, what are some of the trends? First of all, I think the advancements in the fintech space, I mean, it's been great from the standpoint of like what we can deliver to clients and the value we can add as, as advisory professionals. But it's been absolutely paralyzing in terms of what's happened the last 10 years is the industry's consolidated so much. And a lot of these firms are like our model aggregated and the tech breaks down. It doesn't integrate with other tech as well as it should. We've got a lot of consolidation. So we've seen a lot of big fintech players buy other fintech players, which makes it difficult for advisors who are maybe working with one planning software, but then their CRM is now owned by another planning firm. And so there's so many challenges in the fintech space that we don't emphasize enough because we, we're so, we, we like talking about how exciting everything is and there's this new thing and that new thing. I think the reality of where we're going is we're going to see a lot more consolidation, which means tech is going to move from being specialized, so so specialist tech to, you know, I'll call it like general tech, where it's the the investments of the world or the asset marks or the Orions who are, who are trying to deliver across the entire value chain, right? CRM, planning, investment management, marketing. And I think it's inevitable that, that that's where the industry is going to go with. What I say with advisors it, to advisors is this, start auditing your technology two or three times a year. Most advisors use, I think the stat, this, it's like a crazy stat, like less than 50% of the tool that they're actually signed on with. Uh, we at Journey are, are Orion, Imani, Wealthbox, Holistaplan, Riskalive, I mean, we use them all, we love them, but you gotta go really deep with these firms. like. Some of these firms, that what they can do and offer, it's just unbelievable. So first of all, understand what you're paying for and use the hell out of it. Like if you are paying and have access to all of these different things within a software, use as much as you can before jumping to sign up with somebody else that you heard of at a conference. The other thing is set your foundation first before you, you add the, the add-ons, right? You need a solid CRM. You need a planning software and you need a portfolio management tool. Those are your, that's, that's your three core things. Before you look at anything else, make sure that you fully understand the integrations. If they don't integrate well, look at firms like Precise FP that works behind the scenes to fill in the gaps when data breaks down. Make sure that you understand how your custodian feeds data to the systems. That is the table stake stuff that you should do. So how does custo the custodian feed data? What are my three core planning tools and how do they work with each other? And by the way, if you don't like or love any one of them, then go to a solution that has all three. If you don't have a preference, go to a solution that has all three. Um, and then don't add on things that aren't relevant to your clients. If, if your clients are you know, young millennial entrepreneurs, like you may not need to look at an FP Alpha. I think FP Alpha is great by the way, but be, be very cognizant of adding things because it's the right time for you as a firm to add it versus you want to do what everybody else is doing. I love something you said there. And I think it's worth repeating going deep with the technology that you actually have and that alone kind of being a differentiator because most people actually aren't doing that. And Kurt, how often do we see that? I mean, the, the, the big one out there is Salesforce that everybody has. How superficial are people in their use of Salesforce? And I don't really know all the bells and whistles with Salesforce, but I can tell you that most people are not 
really maximizing that thing. We heard that this week from a wire that is like this great tech suite that they're trying to roll out, but they're trying to show everybody all the bells and whistles when they're realizing they're scaring people away because they don't have the nuts and bolts and the foundational stuff figured out. So they're such a beast too. They're such a big firm. And you know, what I, what I found is that simple is so much better for, for, especially for advisors, like, and, and especially on the CRM topic, be, have realistic expectations about what a CRM is supposed to do for you. A CRM is not supposed to literally be a robot that runs your business for you. The CRM is supposed to make sure it houses all of the information you need on a client, right? Demographic, psychographic. It's supposed to serve as a place of record. You can go back and look at notes from any conversation. And it's supposed to be a place that allows you to disseminate tasks and workflows to people on your team. A lot of advisors right now want the CRM and any of their tools to do everything for them, right? Like, I wish I could go into my CRM and see all of the accounts that a client has. And what I always share with advisors is, doesn't matter what firm you're at, what channel you're at, doesn't matter. Nobody has found the perfect tech solution. And it's almost freeing to recognize that, like, you're always going to have issues with your CRM. You're always going to have issues with your custodial feed, whatever it is. I don't think advisors should go down a rabbit hole of spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to figure out how to build a dashboard when in reality, the tech, you know, in most cases works for what we need it to work for. Right. So go, so keep it simple, but still go deep and understand the full capabilities. There's some kind of nice medium uh, or intersection of those things. Is that fair? Exactly. Yes. Okay. Can we, can we debate uh, niches a little bit, which I know you push back on. Can we have this debate? Yeah, absolutely. It surprises me to hear you push back on that when one of the things that you said before had to do with let's create experiences. And to me, the thing that I like about, about niches is one, once you have it, you can sort of do that relentless prospecting. You can get that target list. You can know where, you know, you kind of know who your audience is, but also isn't it the whole point to be able to create a better experience because you're in that world and you're focused on that world or how am I thinking about that wrong? You're not. And I'm, I remember exactly when I said that and in what context, Steve, and (laughs) am I misstating the context? It could be. I've been in the practice management game, right? Like the, the webinars and the coaching cohorts and whatever. And we make all these declarative statements about what advisors should do. Like you cannot be successful if unless you, you are. You must a, do. Unless you're yeah, a, I know. You, you have yeah. to be in, in a niche. And listen, is there data around the fastest growing firms or the biggest firms? And like, do they specialize or not? Sure. I mean, there was data there, there is data that points that, and I, I would agree. By the way, anecdotally, like you talk to most of the really successful firms or advisors in the business, number one, they're all relentless prospectors, right? They're, they're obsessed with their business. They also tend to focus in a specific area. But, but my point to especially newer advisors, I've seen a lot of advisors say like, I need to focus on a niche, and all, and all of a sudden they're like, I want to focus on dentists who own their practices or you know, female entrepreneurs. And it's like, okay, first of all, do you have access to that network of people? Do you have a passion and enthusiasm for doing work with those type of people? It's perfectly okay to have a specialty with three or four or five different types of communities or target groups. If you started out in any one of the captive channels, you brought on anyone with a pulse, right? And then over time, you started to find that that you had your sweet spot with certain types of clients. I always tell advisors, allow that to evolve organically versus all of a sudden you're posting ghostwritten content about, you know, female, you know, entrepreneurs. And it's totally, first of all, if if you're, not only is it from left field, there is nothing about the actual experience that it's reflecting that you serve female entrepreneurs other than the fact that you have it on your website. So that's a critical piece of this. If you are going to be going to market and saying, we serve, and I'll use this example because it's easy for me, like the female millennial entrepreneur, right? Very specific niche. If that's what's on your website and that's what you're telling people and you want to go to market as that, I better feel like what you're delivering was built specifically for me. So here are a couple of, of examples. 
first of all, your content needs to be focused on things that I'm concerned about right now. Concerns for me are things like, you know, um, work-life balance. I have like 25 different side hustles in addition to my like main business, right? Like how do I balance all of that? How do I maximize, you know, cash flow for myself? Things that I'm thinking about as an entrepreneur. Oh, and by the way, I don't have time to be physically meeting an advisor at noon in their office. So giving me options for how to engage, how to onboard, how to meet with them, sending me videos like, hey, we just sent you a link to the portal. Here's a quick video on how to get yourself you know, in versus scheduling a meeting to sign. Like, these are the little things that you need to think about. Sending me an article about breathing exercises that I can do while I'm on a plane flying to my next appointment, sending me a book, 10% Happier. It's a great book about meditation. Like that entire experience is for the me's of the world, right? If you were saying you serve me, but you're treating me like you would your retiree client that lives in your community, there's the breakdown. And so I want advisors to be very careful with that. If you're not willing to go to that level to serve somebody, then forget forget the niches and just serve whoever you want. It makes total sense. Don't force it and and make sure you're able to deliver that experience, that value. And that's okay. Now it makes sense. So it wasn't much of a debate at all. I actually agree with you completely. So I wish it was. Yeah. What can we debate? Can we de- I would love to argue with you guys on something. She referenced the data. So the, the data <laughs> is, is pretty clear. The, the people that niche down tend to drive more business. And but it's it's not the fact that they have a niche, it's how they service that niche, which makes the difference. That is exact. So that's exactly right. And there are a couple firms out there that serve, they're big RAs right now that serve, let's say, athletes or, you know, um, celebrities or whatever. Well, the, the services that they offer, what they're talking about, there's one firm in particular I'm thinking about, it is only around that. I know I was just on a firm, another firm's website, they serve tech entrepreneurs. They do financial planning for tech professionals. On their site, they literally have, if you work at Apple, if you work at Google, if you work at Meta, click here for a free guide on benefits at your firm. That's niching. Saying that you serve tech entrepreneurs and then the website looks the same and the onboarding process is the same, that's, forget it. Just don't even say that. I do want to talk to you about sales assistance. We talked about roles before. Um, I find people struggling there more than anything else. In a couple of ways, the recruiting, but I think you kind of touched that. That that's more like specifically make sure that you're building a bench of when you gotta bring someone on. So I like that concept. But what about the difference of one like some sales assistants that are unregistered that really don't have the desire to do much more versus people that are full on getting a CFP and what you do with them? Yeah. So and this is such a big discussion and maybe another another episode that the role evolution on a team. The first is. Advisors need to be really clear with the team member they're hiring about, first of all, expectations and the objectives that they that the role needs to achieve. Meaning you can have a service associate or a sales assistant or whatever. And the way that you get the most out of that person in their current role is not to give them a list of tasks to complete or a job ad with like, here are your responsibilities. So a lot of times the, the the criticism or feedback I'll hear about that type of a team player is, God, they don't, they they do what I ask them, but they don't think two steps ahead or they're not proactive, they're not strategic, they're not really evolving. And I always say to advisors, well, have you helped them think about what it is that they should be aiming to achieve in their role that leads to business results? So for example, an admin, Their objective in any given week should be to serve as air traffic controller of the organization. And how do they know they were successful at being an air traffic controller? Simple. Everybody got a response within 24 hours. All communication that needed to be, or all questions or challenges that clients had that needed to be addressed got addressed. The advisor was prepared for every phone call and meeting 36 hours in advance. I'm making it up, but those are the key results, right? So now all of a sudden what you're doing is you're giving the person and you're co-creating this with them, but you're giving them everything they need to self-assess, to hold themselves accountable and to figure out whether they're achieving results or not achieving results. And so, so on and so forth. When you have an, like, let's say client service associate or associate advisor on the team, they are going to, again, 
advisor forwards them an email, take care of this or put together an agenda, they're going to do it. The way we get them to think bigger is one of their objectives is consistently creating capacity for the senior advisor. At the end of every week, that service associate should be asking him or herself and at the end of the quarter going into the professional development review meeting with their own assessment. But they need to be asking themselves, did I create capacity for the advisor this week? Were there other opportunities I could have created more capacity? And then over time, what you will get is a sense of whether somebody has a knack for being more strategic, whether they are super efficient at operations, whether they're relationship management oriented, and then you build out the pathways from there. Somebody who starts out as, let's just say, an admin slash service associate has two pathways, really three. They're either going down the path of ultimately COO, right? They're admin, ops, service, ultimately going to run operations for the organization or not. But but like that's one. The second is admin, service, client service, junior advisor, in-house advisor, right? CFP delivering advice or in rare cases, <clears throat> service advisor, junior advisor, business development officer oriented advisor. That's it. It's usually going to be the first or second one. What I love about your story and the journey of what you're like literally building the journey, the RIA, but also you put such an emphasis on human capital, which I hear so infrequently in our business. I know it's, it's, it's kind of like a dollars and cents. It's driven yep. by numbers um, yep. and big personalities, but valuing how, you know, who's in the seat and how that person is developed over time. I just don't hear a ton of content around that. So I'm so happy that you you found that niche, you're filling that niche. Yeah. And um, I, I just think it's a story that needs to be told. So always great chatting with you. And thank you so much for your time today. Anytime, guys. Appreciate it. You're uh, you're fantastic. We needed an, probably another hour, honestly, is what we needed. Just to even Totally. Going, we should but. just do a series together or something. Yeah. Uh, you heard it, Kurt. So that's happening now. <laughs> Netflix will pick it up, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you to our guest, uh, Penny Phillips, who was fantastic. As always, we will be right back with our Costanza Corner. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. And welcome back to our Costanza Corner, where we like to leave on a high note, and Kurt is going to help us do that today. We got an email from a colleague this week that talked about work-life balance, and he was asking us, you know, as like dealing with financial professionals, like how a lot of financial professionals are like high achievers, probably difficult to turn it off. A lot of wholesalers are are the same way. So how do we think about work-life balance? I'm so glad that you responded to that because I would have <laughs> <laughs> I would have struggled to be as articulate. But that conversation sort of happening at the same time that this article came out. So there's this new, I'd call it a meta-analysis of people dealing with depression. And obviously not a mental health professional at all, but I enjoy exercising. And what this study came out to show is that there's significant improvements to mental health for people that exercise. So this is out of the University of Potsdam in Germany. It's a meta-analysis. It's 41 different studies, almost 2,300 people. And it not super prescriptive, but like, you know, how much exercise do you need to meet like maximum mental health? Uh, th- there's no prescription in there. It's just, you know, some is good, more is better is is kind of the, the diagnosis. And so I just think for any of us that get in our own headspace about work-life balance, because, you know, particularly post-COVID, it's not work-life balance. It's like work-life chaos. Just remember the role that physical activity can play in your mental Helping, and you might you know shed a couple of lbs in the process. That never hurts. But take the time, do it for yourself. It has significant cognitive benefits. I mean, the best ideas that I've ever come up with in my life, or at least what I think. Other people might think they're awful. Who knows? But the best one was definitely when I'm like on a mountain somewhere, climbing a hill, running around. You know, there's something about doing that that really allows you to focus and think and. What's crazy is the excuses. You know you know what happens when we open up our calendars. They're totally blocked across. Where am I going to find time to exercise? But what you don't realize is if you don't, 
all those activities that you have in there will be less optimal than if you actually fit it in. That's like, it's like, it's, and, and, you know, I'm just yelling at myself right now is what I'm doing. Cause I need to do it more. I need to do it more. I'm at like, I thought this is a good reminder for people. Yeah. I'm, I'm at, I think if I had, I probably like twice, two to three times a week and I want to be three to four to five times a week where I'm kind of on a hill or do, doing something like that. So thank you, Kurt. This was a high note. I'm going to go right after we're done, right up a hill. I got you, dude. All right. Well, that was our show. Thanks for, for listening and we'll see you next time. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. RIA is an acronym for Registered Investment Advisor a firm that advises clients on securities investments and may manage their investment portfolios. OSJ is an acronym for Office of Supervisory Jurisdiction, an office identified by a broker-dealer as having supervisory responsibilities for agents and branch offices within its region. CFP is an acronym for Certified Financial Planner, a formally recognized expert in the areas of financial planning, taxes, insurance, estate planning, and retirement saving. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC. This commentary is for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The prospectus and the summary prospectus contain this and other information about the fund. To obtain a prospectus or a summary prospectus, contact your financial professional or download and or request one at touchstoneinvestments.com resources or call Touchstone at 800-638-8194. Please read the prospectus and or summary prospectus carefully before investing.